0: Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. You know, what we're seeing on the ground is, is, is Russia trying
1: to upend this rules-based international order that generations of Americans have fought to deliver and to sustain. I think sometimes outside of Washington, it's hard for people to appreciate the consequences of what we're seeing on the ground in Ukraine. And that's why, you know, the United States and our Western partners and allies are so invested in ensuring that this results in strategic failure for Putin. I really think, Michael, that history will reflect that the work the intel community did will be right up there along with, you know, uncovering uh, ballistic missiles in Cuba in 1962 and finding bin Laden in 2011. I think this will be one of the third great
2: achievements um, for the intel community. Brett Holmgren is the Assistant Secretary for Intelligence and Research at the Department of State. Prior to that, Brett served in several national security related department and agencies, including CIA. Brett joins us today to talk about the key national security issues facing the nation. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Brett, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It's uh, it's great to have you with us.
1: It's great to be here, Michael. Thank you.
2: You're welcome. Lots to talk about. Lots going on in the world. But before we get to that, I'd like to take just a few minutes to talk about the organization that you run at the State Department, the Bureau of Intelligence and Research. And I'm wondering if we can start, Brett, by you just giving us a sense about what the bureau that you run at State does on a day-to-day basis, and how does it fit into the broader intelligence community?
1: Sure, thank you for that question, Michael. So as some of your listeners will know, the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, otherwise known as INR, is in fact the oldest Civilian intelligence agency in the United States. We are celebrating our 76th uh, anniversary this year. Uh, We are a direct descendant of the Office of Strategic Services, along with our brothers and sisters from the CIA. So, you know, history is important in this context because I think some of the legacy that has defined, you know, INR throughout the last 76 years deep expertise, independence, always speaking truth to power, that legacy persists to this day. And a lot of it stems from its roots in the OSS, where you had a large uh, number of academics and social scientists and geographers and economists who really, you know, they were known as the armchair division of the U.S. military during World War II. And that same sense of pride, I think, you know, carries through to this day. We are, you know, one of the three all-source analytic components in the, in the intelligence community, but we have a unique mission. And whereas, you know, CIA, as you know, their primary customer is the president and other senior national policymakers. You know, the defense intelligence agency, their primary customer is the secretary of defense and the warfighter. For INR, our primary customer is the secretary of state and U.S. diplomats. And so, you know, We are on a mission to deliver and coordinate timely, objective intelligence to advance U.S. diplomacy, and I think everyone in our organization takes that responsibility uh, incredibly seriously.
2: I just want to make sure that everybody understood that INR, what you said, is INR is one year older than the Central Intelligence Agency. I think that's important for people to know. Indeed. So, Brett, your focus on serving diplomats, does that mean that that you focus on slightly different things than, say, CIA or DIA? Does it mean you focus more on understanding foreign leaders, more on understanding the decision-making process in foreign countries? Is there a slight difference at the end of the day?
1: You know, I would say it depends, Michael. And a lot of this is driven by, you know, the priorities of of the department. So, obviously, for INR, you know, we are focused on uh, supporting diplomatic engagements and providing unique uh, insights to our diplomats uh, overseas as well as the Secretary of State. And so, in a lot of cases, some of the analysis that uh, CIA, DIA, the NIC, and others do, it may be similar to what INR produces, but I think what differentiates us is that, you know, this is unique in the, I think, in the intelligence community is that the proximity that INR has to policymakers is both, I think, an incredible opportunity for us because we have, you know, our policymakers are literally on the same floor as INR analysts here at the State Department. What that allows us is the opportunity, I think, to anticipate policy questions probably a little bit quicker than other parts of the intelligence community and therefore to tailor some of the analytic products, briefings, but also, you know, other kind of operational support that we provide we're able to do that in a way that I think is probably a little a little faster and a little more agile than other parts of the intel community.
2: So I'm wondering if, if some of the countries or functional issues might be a little different than other parts of the community. And what, what comes to mind here is I saw that the department recently determined that the Burmese government committed genocide against the Rohingya people, and I saw that INR played you know, a major role in that determination. And and that's not something you see other IC agencies do.
1: That's right, Michael. I mean, for, you know, almost 30 years, uh, INR has uh, been an executive agent on behalf of the intelligence community, working with international tribunals, national commissions, other accountability mechanisms to, you know, provide uh, information, intelligence information to the appropriate authorities so that they can make their own determinations. Our team here, I know, is incredibly proud of the work that they did to surface the information they spoke with victims in Burma to get uh, gather firsthand accounts of the atrocities and provided that information you know, here in the department to support the recent determinations that you mentioned. So in the current context, you know, in the context of Russia, Ukraine, it's something that, you know, INR and the, intel- the entire intelligence community uh, is obviously very focused on. Given the horrific scenes that we're witnessing uh, every day uh, in Ukraine, and Michael, you're you were someone who was very close to the counterterrorism mission. Obviously, I, I was as well. And you know, frankly, some of the scenes that we're witnessing out uh, in uh, in Ukraine with the horrific airstrike on the the train station, right. some of this is reminiscent of you know attacks you would see in the wake of you know bombings by ISIS and Al Qaeda. So it's really horrific, and you know, thanks to D&I Haynes' leadership immediately after the invasion in February, the intelligence community quickly mobilized to already begin establishing uh, mechanisms and processes to collect, uh, analyze, identify, report, and importantly, to preserve information from intelligence sources that could be used to support future accountability mechanisms with respect to uh, the atrocious uh, acts uh, that have been committed in Ukraine.
2: And that'll go into some sort of policy process at some point. Um, Exactly. Yeah. I also want to ask Brett about INR's new strategic plan, which you guys just put out. It's actually available on the internet. Looks very cool, I must say. I just want to ask, what are the, what are the big changes that, that you'd like to see in INR going forward?
1: Sure. Th- thanks for that question, Michael. And very proud of the work that our entire team has done the last several months to inform the strategic plan. You know, the first thing I would note is that I was building on a strong foundation. I've been in INR about seven months this week. And so there's an incredible foundation and a bunch of work that had already been done But I'm a firm believer in the uh, principle of continuous improvement and that you've always, as an organization, you always have to continue to evolve, to adapt to new threats and challenges and take advantage of opportunities in the world. And so I spent the first couple of months uh, listening. We had convening focus groups. We met with stakeholders inside and outside of the Bureau and uh, inside and outside of the State Department. And I kicked off a series of task force reviews that were really focused on trying to identify what those core capabilities in INR that would separate us from the rest of the intelligence community, such that, you know, if INR disappeared from the face of the earth one day, you know, people would really recognize a void in the intel community. And so uh, the focus was on really trying to identify what those things are that, 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 get, that make us unique. And all of that contributed to uh, development of the strategic plan, And we refined our our mission statement. We have a new vision statement, which is intelligence empowering diplomacy. I like that. Uh, And then set forth five strategic priorities. You can't get everything done. I won't go through all of them, but two I do want to focus on. The first I think will resonate with you, which is elevating the importance of strategic analysis and redefining how we provide intelligence support to diplomacy. And Elevating strategic analysis, you know, that's a critically important function and service to provide to policymakers in this 24-7 news cycle, where there's, you know, a constant need to respond to questions and taskings from policymakers. What we want to focus on here in INR over the next few years is really returning to our roots and providing that deep expertise to help uncover opportunities, uh, vulnerabilities, in some of our adversaries and competitors around the world. So that means less, in some respects, probably less daily production, but more, a larger volume of what I would call strategic assessments that really help provide some decision advantage for our policymakers. Get them out of their inbox to some extent. It, exactly. The second thing that we're really leaning into is in the technology side of things and you know, I think it's probably one area that, you know, INR had been a little under in when I arrived and we've got a lot of work to do, but there are two components to our technology agenda. One is undertaking a digital transformation so that we can empower the business and, and our analysts with the tools and resources they need. So this includes, we've got to make a, you know, we've got to migrate to the cloud so we can be more agile, uh, take advantage of some of the um, uh, capabilities that the rest of the intelligence community has in the cloud Providing kind of more modern content delivery uh, platforms for INR's products and services, and then the second component of the technology agenda is around strengthening our cybersecurity internally to make sure that we're defending and safeguarding the information that you know INR is responsible for protecting, since we own and manage and operate the top secret SCI fabric uh, for the Department of State. So those are two really big areas that that we're gonna we're already putting a lot of time and resources into and. Um, uh, I'm quite excited about uh, seeing where uh, where things head uh, in both of these areas.
2: Well, good luck with both of those because they're, they're, they're both really important. And you're not the only one who's underinvested in technology um, over the years. The entire community has, and they have a lot of catching up to do. So good luck on both of those. So, Brad, I'd love to shift a little bit to what's going on in the world. And I, I just want to be upfront with my listeners that, I'm not going to ask you policy questions, you know what should the u s do about x, y, or Z because you're an intelligence officer, and for those folks who might not understand the context around what I just said, Brett, if you can just quickly explain to people the the bright red line in the United States between intelligence and policy
1: sure and as as someone who began their career as an analyst in the intelligence community, as you know well, Michael. This is a bright red line that is drawn the first day you walk into the community as an analyst and you know analysts are there to support policymakers, you know, with the best objective information and intelligence available. I've also been a policymaker and so I think that has been useful for me because I understand You know both the opportunities and the limitations of of what the intel community can provide so i appreciate now that i am in an intelligence
2: role i appreciate
1: your awareness
2: of the importance of that (laughs) issue (laughs) okay no questions in terms of should we have a no-fly zone over ukraine okay um no surprise brad i'd like to start with ukraine and i'd like to focus on some questions that i don't think have classified answers but that i really don't see as well covered in the media as i would like and The first one is, what impact are the sanctions having inside of Russia? Has life changed in any fundamental way for Russians, you know, living in big cities, smaller cities, or even in rural areas? You know, what's been the impact so far?
1: Yeah. Thank you for that question, Michael. Let me just say two things, if I can, about, you know, what we're seeing in Ukraine just at the top. The first is that... Yeah, this is a truly historic moment for Europe, and I think an inflection point for the entire world. And, you know, I don't say that lightly, but, you know, what we're seeing on the ground is is, is Russia trying to upend this rules-based international order that generations of Americans have fought to deliver and to sustain. And uh, I just think it, it is—I think sometimes outside of Washington, it's hard for people to appreciate the consequences of what we're seeing on the ground in Ukraine. And that's why the United States and our Western partners and allies are so invested in ensuring that this results in strategic failure for Putin. The second point I wanna make is really to compliment the intel community on the work that they did in the run-up to the invasion, providing the strategic indications and warning of Russia's plans and intentions which was absolutely vital, and I've seen it on the diplomatic side, in allowing the United States to mobilize with other, you know, with our partners' and allies, a unified uh, response immediately after the invasion. So I really think, Michael, that history will reflect that the work the intel community did will be right up there, along with, you know, uncovering uh, ballistic missiles in Cuba in 1962 and finding bin Laden in 2011. I think this will be one of the third great achievements um, for the intel community.
2: Was there a couple things, though, that, that we could have done slightly better at in terms of, of understanding um, how tough a fight this was going to be for Russia at the end of the day? I mean, my sense was that the IC was saying that, you know, what I thought, that the Russians were going to be able to, to get to Kiev pretty quickly.
1: Well, look again, Michael. As you know, the Intel community—we always want to learn. Uh, We always want to internalize, you know, opportunities from prior experiences. In this case, I think if you just look at the sheer numbers on paper of Russia's, you know, personnel, military forces, their capabilities compared to the Ukrainians, there's no distinction there. I mean, it's, it's an incredible gap between the two, and I think. You know, I think a lot of our, you know, our analysts, I talk to our analysts about this regularly, the lens that they had looking at Russia's military was through a more traditional conventional lens. But what we've seen with the Ukrainians, due to the courage and incredible willpower to resist this invasion, is is frankly a bit of a surprise, not only for the intel community, but I think for for a lot of folks. And it's a real credit, uh, again, to the Ukrainian uh, people. Their ability to resist and really to to push the Russians back immediately in the first phase of this operation, so I think there 's an opportunity for us to kind of take a look back at, at what happened. I think at the same time, one thing our analysts have talked about is that the military the kind of the tactical failure frankly by the Russian military in the first phase of their campaign this is something that will be studied by analysts in the Intel community for years to come. This will be a case study of you know, just how ill-prepared the Russians uh, were on a tactical and a strategic level for the first phase of this operation.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the other thing is that at the end of the day, the will to fight is so much more important than the ability to fight. Couldn't agree more. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Brett.
0: Sleeping Dogs now on digital. That's SleepingDogsMovie dot slash Wondery.
2: Brett, I want to ask about the administration's use of intelligence to help fight the information war against Russia. I'm very supportive of that, and I think you know going forward, it's likely to become a powerful and regular tool of to foreign policy. I think we've really stumbled onto something here, and. And I want to ask you two things. First, what impact do you think that public sharing of intelligence had has had so far on the conflict? Well,
1: Michael, again as as someone who serves in the intel community, this has been a paradigm shift as you can imagine for the workforce of the intel community to declassify and to downgrade intelligence to make it available. That's just not something that Uh, You know, a lot of Intel folks are generally comfortable (laughs) with. Um, It has been a paradigm shift, but the community, both the collectors, the analysts, and the folks that work, the downgrading requests, you know, all this is work through established process. There have been no process differences here. Everything is ultimately those determinations about what to downgrade and share are made by the collection agencies as they should be. And they let policymakers know what can and what cannot be shared, and that's how the process should work. I can just tell you from the diplomatic side of things, the ability to downgrade you know, to a secret REL level, and in some cases at the unclassified level, was incredibly powerful, especially in the run-up to the invasion, to engage with you know, countries, especially in Europe, that may have been on the fence at the times or skeptical of the intelligence reporting. The ability to share that uh, information, in some cases in near real time, really provided a common situational awareness across the coalition you know, that, that we're trying to mobilize to, to push back against Russian aggression. And even since then, it hasn't, you know, didn't stop at when the invasion began. We've continued to share information with our partners and allies and with the world to, frankly, to help expose Russia's plans and intentions and you know, to provide important warning to the Ukrainians of you know, attacks or uh, other uh, strikes that the Russians uh, may be planning.
2: You know, it was my sense, it was my sense, Brent, that the sharing of the public sharing of the intelligence made it much more difficult for Putin to come up with a predicate or a rationale for the invasion, that we really cut that out from underneath him. That seemed to me to be very powerful. I don't know if that was the intent, but, you know, that's what I saw. And then the other thing was, you know, he was telling his his people that he wasn't going to invade. And we, in terms of sharing intelligence, were saying, no, he's going to invade, he's going to invade. And so at the end of the day, he was shown as a liar to his own people. So get your reaction to that. Is that, is that on track or is that off track?
1: Michael, I think you're absolutely right on, on both accounts. You know, on your first point, you know, I think that the Russians were clearly surprised at the uh, strategy that that the and, and u you s know, and the West took to frankly to preempt some of his plans and intentions, and so I think he 's surprised they 've had to adjust to that and to your second point you 're right, I think he was not uh, and has not been uh, truthful to the Russian people and certainly not to several members of the Russian military as well in terms of what the plans and intentions in Ukraine actually were. You know, this was not to liberate uh, the Ukrainian people. This was, you know, a, a very specific uh, military campaign to ultimately to destroy Ukraine's sovereignty. And it, it was—it's quite clear that not all of the Russian soldiers participating in this campaign were aware of that uh, reality heading into the conflict.
2: And then, Brett, in terms of this this information sharing, this intelligence sharing that the administration has been doing. Um, and all the positive things we just talked about. There was, a, there was a NBC News piece last week that really caught my attention because it cited unnamed sources in the administration saying that the intelligence community was not just playing in the information space, right, sharing, sharing truthful information, but was playing in the disinformation space, sharing information that analysts had some significant doubts about. And I just wonder if you could comment on that.
1: You know, Michael, I saw, I did see the news report and I have to say the, you know, what what was presented in that story is, it contradicts what I actually have seen in reality. The intelligence that has been submitted to the intelligence community for downgrading requests, you know, this is not intelligence that people have been skeptical about, at least as based on what I've seen. This is information that, you know, in a lot of cases is multi-sourced and which is in part why I, I think some of the Collectors are comfortable at times sharing a little more publicly because, you know, it is multi-sourced. And so, again, I've seen the report, but I think it, it has all gone through a rigorous process, you know, with policymakers at the White House. Uh, and then ultimately those decisions being made by, by the intelligence community in terms of what can be shared.
2: You put my mind at ease. It's excellent. I was worried about that. All right, great. But I just want to shift gears a little bit, but stay on Ukraine here and ask about China. I think it's safe to say, when you look at all of their words for the invasion, all of their actions since the invasion, that the Chinese were supportive of this invasion. I just want to get sort of your comment on China in, in the context of Russia-Ukraine.
1: Sure, Michael. I, you know, I think this no-limits strategic partnership that Putin and she, you know, announced in February. So right before the invasion, you know, I do think, you know, we will probably look back on this as a, as a turning point in PRC Russian uh, relations, you know, notwithstanding the historical differences that the two countries have had, right, right. you know, ultimately what binds them, at least in our view, is that they have a shared interest in weakening U S influence undermining Western norms to counter what they perceived as, you know, efforts to contain them. And so that is the overriding kind of glue that binds them together at this point. Having said that, you know, we do think the, that the PRC um, is unsettled. And I think they may be having a little buyer's remorse in, yeah. in terms of what they signed up for uh, with the Russians. But, you know, the world's the world will be watching it. The ball's in is in China's court to see you know which nations uh, stand up for self-determination and sovereignty and which
2: ones don't you mentioned earlier and i think it's it's dead right that it's hard to overstate the significance of this right from a geopolitical geostrategic perspective and i think i agree with you china made a mistake here and i wonder you know history is going to tell us right whether they're going to pay a significant price for this or not but certainly the European countries, major, major trading partner, right, aren't, Mm -hmm. aren't happy with them and have made that clear.
1: It's absolutely right. You know, and we had uh, hosted some EU counterparts here at the State Department a couple of weeks ago and had a a really, you know, robust engagement uh, with our counterparts on this very issue. And, you know, one of the big consequences for the PRC, if, you know, they continue down this path is, is on the economic side of things, especially with their European trading partners. So, a lot for uh, Beijing to consider.
2: You know, the other thing that strikes me, right, one of the surprises for certainly for Putin and probably for Xi was that they didn't expect the world to come together, right? They didn't expect the United States to be able to, to pull together the coalition that was pulled together, you know, with the robust sanctions. That was, you know, probably a surprise to both of them. And that's a real shot in the arm, right, to the U.S.-led international order, that has to be something that Beijing you know, is looking at very closely and will study and will think through what this means for them in the long term.
1: I think that's absolutely right, Michael. It's a great point. I mean, in some respects, Putin has achieved exactly the opposite of what he set out to do, which is to further divide NATO and the West. It has had the opposite effect. It has unified the alliance. And, you know, it's one of the, one of the big misjudgments that Putin made heading into this conflict. You know, he... Overestimated the strength of his military. He underestimated the willpower of the Ukrainian people. And, you know, he underestimated the resolve and the unity of the West in the wake of this invasion.
2: We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more intelligence matters. Stay with us. Okay,
0: picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
2: Brad, I wanna just ask one more question about China. From a geostrategic competition perspective, a lot of countries you know see themselves as getting caught in the middle here between the United States and China. And some countries have clearly, clearly sided with us, like Australia, United Kingdom, Japan, India, South Korea, some other countries have sided with China, not very many of them. But there's a lot of other countries that, you know, kind of don't know what to do. And I'm just wondering if you could comment on the situation that they find themselves in and how they might be thinking about diplomacy going forward.
1: Sure, Michael. You know, as, as d i Haynes has said, you know, China is an unparalleled priority for the intelligence community. That's certainly the case in INR. We're investing more analysts and experts to focus on PRC and China in a whole variety of domains. You know, when we think about the threat that China poses, it is, you know, they're they're a pure competitor, but they are, at least in INR's view, you know, the the greatest long-term threat to the United States. And I think that's important, as you mentioned, other countries, because, you know, they are the only competitor, you know, that is capable of combining their military, economic, and technological strength and power to mount a, you know, a sustained challenge to a stable and open international system. You know, so I think that's that's really the question, that's the challenge that you know that we all collectively, you know, s- sort of face and obviously as you mentioned a number of countries have economic and other considerations, but you know for us that is the one that that stands out as is the long-term, you know, threat that they pose uh, to that international system.
2: Let me Brett shift to Iran and just ask one question. It's really unclear whether we're going to end up with a nuclear deal or not, and I don't want to ask you to comment on that. But if we don't, if we don't end up with an agreement, I'm wondering if you expect that Iran will just do more of what it has been doing, which is, you know, pushing its uranium enrichment program, you know, forward in an aggressive manner and continuing with what has been a couple of years of very aggressive malign behavior in the region, I'm wondering if you expect more of the same or if you expect them to react to no deal in some other way. Well,
1: you know, ultimately, uh, Michael, that'll be a, a decision for the, uh, you know, for the Iranian uh, leadership to make. But, you know, our view in, in certainly in INR is that, you know, Iran, you know, with a nuclear weapon poses an enormous risk to the region. And, and so that's why I think the administration has been so focused on preventing them from acquiring a nuclear capability. But as you know, it's a multidimensional threat that Iran poses, not just, it's not just on the nuclear issue, but it's also, you know, the instability and destabilizing activities that they conduct already in Iraq and Syria, uh, Yemen, violence against, you know, against Israel. And so, you know, they are focused on, Iran is focused on eroding, you know, U.S. influence in the Middle East. And I think that will remain true uh, regardless of whether there's a nuclear deal uh, or not.
2: Yeah, I know it's interesting that people say that um, if we have a nuclear deal and we end up you know, giving them money because their sanctions relief, that that will feed their regional misbehavior. But you know, their regional misbehavior the last few years under very intense sanctions has been among the worst it's ever been. So it's an interesting counterpoint to those who worry about the consequences of a deal.
1: And, and as you know, Michael, in the intel community, you know, we're going to be laser focused on just providing the very best analysis and assessments to policymakers regarding you know Iran's activities, whether they're in a deal or not. So that's where we'll be focused on.
2: Brad, I want to ask you one more substantive question and then a, a final question about INR. And the one more substantive question is about a part of the world that anybody talking about really with the passion that I think they should, and that's Latin America. I'm very concerned about Latin America I'm concerned about politics going to the extremes in a number of countries. I'm concerned about Mexico sort of transitioning into a non friendly, highly criminalized country. I'm concerned about inept and authoritarian nations stifling freedom and growth, and as a result, generating mass migration. I think Venezuela is the poster child for that. I just don't see very many people talking about the region and the risks to the United States going forward here. I'm just wondering, from your perspective, are my concerns misplaced? Do you share them? Do you not? Is there work being done on this? Could you just comment on that?
1: Sure, Michael. No, I think your your concerns are valid. And there is a lot of focus um, internally in the intel community, as well as on the policy side of things. I would say you know, one of the things that we've been you know, really focused on, given all of the trends that you mentioned in Latin America, is, you know, the potential for especially, you know, Russia and China to take advantage of, you know, uh, instability, to take advantage of, you know, deteriorating economic situations in, in, in a number of countries, you know, to begin to expand their influence in the region. And so, you know, there's obviously a lot of historical precedent, especially for Russia operating in that area. And... I think that's one of the big areas of focus that we have. Certainly, in the intel community, is to understand, you know, the actions that Russia and China are taking in Latin America, so that we can provide analysis to policymakers, and they can, you know, take steps, you know, to minimize that risk.
2: And then, Brett, just one more question: What do you want folks to know about the women and the men who work at INR?
1: Well, it's a great question, Michael. I want folks to know that. These are some of the brightest and most dedicated and hardest working, you know, professionals that we have in the intelligence community. These are folks in INR. They generally spend their entire careers, you know, 20, 30 years in INR because they love the institution, they love the mission, and they really have a passion for the work that they do. And so that's what I want folks to know about INR is uh, what an incredible kind of iconic institution it is and the value that it provides to empower diplomacy around the world.
2: And I think they're they're very lucky to have you um, at the helm. Brett, it's been, been great to have you with us. Been great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Michael, thank you very much. If I can just say two more things. Sure. Um, one of the things in INR we've done this year, we've opened a Twitter account. We want to be out there to recruit. And so at StateINR is our Twitter account. And then finally, Michael, just on a personal note, I've been a big listener of uh, Intelligence Matters for a number of years. And one of the things I love about your show is that I always learn something from it. And so that's a, a compliment to you and your team. And I hope folks had an opportunity to learn something about INR
2: today. Thank you. I think they did. I think they did. Thanks. Thanks, Brett, so much for joining us. That was Brett Holmgren. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence
0: Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News.